0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez packham Let's get on with the show. Ah, I have enjoyed my Christmas holiday. I hope you all did too. I'm now back behind the mic with an episode I've been dying to do for ages. And this seems like a good time to get us going and excited before we do a full episode on the 1st of February. 2020, I thought we might have a little adventure. Before we get going, I want to give a warm welcome to some new patrons our new ho ho toffs, the Lady Gordon and Melissa Amador, and our latest lovable chimney sweep, Cara Di Domizio. I apologise if I've got your name pronunciation slightly wrong there, Cara. You patrons, are amazing, and your support is so fantastic. Don't forget to listen to the Patrons Only episodes. The most recent was on Mary Ann Girling and some religious craziness. I hope you enjoy. Also, a huge thank you to the two listeners who made kind donations. Linda, who donated in December, thank you. Brad, who also donated, again thank you. Brad is perhaps better known as talented artist Brad Hammond. His work is ace and you should see it at com. I'm sure he won't mind the shout out. I've got some listener reviews to read out as well. First, CB2018 says, Quote, I love this podcast. I've always been very interested in the Victorian era and read a lot of fiction written during this period. However, I really didn't know the history and the actual events that led up to and what occurred during the Victorian era. And this podcast is absolutely filling in that gap. I recently been doing a lot of highway driving and I always make sure that before I leave, I have a good number of these podcasts downloaded to listen to on my long trips. I find them fascinating. Bravo Chris. Thank you for the thorough research and the time you take. Not only to investigate all of the details and provide different perspectives. But also to give us a glimpse of everyday life. And not letting us forget the Victorians were people who were going through a lot of change and that it wasn't always rosy. I can easily give this podcast a 5 out of 5, end quote. That's a lovely review. Thank you for taking the time and trouble. I love listening to podcasts too when I drive, which drives my wife and kids nuts, since they all hate podcasts, and they would rather argue over pop music. On the everyday life point, now that we are in the Victorian era proper, There will be some really deep dives into the home, life, marriage, clothes, and things like that this coming year, as well as the big events. Won't fall asleep, says, quote, fantastic podcast. You have the perfect voice and attitude and love of history for teaching us, end quote. I'm glad to hear it. I've always believed history can be addictive and it is a pleasure to share it with you. Crystalline W. says, Quote, Amazing podcast. Very informational. Thank you. End quote. Again, my pleasure. Finally, Randolphus says, Quote, I love the age of Victoria. Long familiar with the term. Now learn about the Victorian era in depth. End quote. Oh, and finally, before we get going today, well, finally, finally, anyway, I was interviewed by the always delightful Noah Tetzner for a 15-episode podcast series he is doing for the Searcy Institute. The series is called Victoria's World. It has a lot of professional Victorian historians and a range of topics, so it should be fascinating. You can find the series at www.shows.pippa.com with a double p dot io slash victorias hyphen world with no space you would probably easier finding it with google and just putting in searcy institute and victoria's world i'm not sure when my interview will appear but honestly as victorian lovers you are bound to find it interesting to listen to from start to finish so enjoy now let's get on with today's episode So, you have been mocked by the other gentlemen at the club for being less than manly. Your fuzzy facial hair can't be called a beard. You can't hold your brandy there, Ledge. Which is why you are teetotal. You tremble like a schoolgirl when given the chance to compete at manly sport for manly men. When offered the chance to spar with fists or blade, you shrink away. You even refuse to sit down and wager a few pounds at the card table or over billiards you turn down that commission in the army in favour of becoming an author or worse a poet there are even rumours you read romance novels your father is ashamed your brother refuses to be seen with you your sisters gloss over you when talking to eligible bachelors are in danger of being laughed out of London and you are half sure that complete milksop in that new play is based on you. Your hopes of marrying the delightful Felicity Brightwell are vanishing. And surely Major William Anvil-Jaw Thomas will tempt her with his huge muscles, his pencil-thin waxed moustache, his skin-tight white trousers that leave nothing to the imagine whilst he swaggers happily, making her laugh with his jokes and elegant manners, all paid for. With his £2,000 a year income. You'd confront him. But people have told you not to mess with Major Thomas. Then as you stop at the temperance meeting. And drink your lemonade. It hits you. Surely Felicity. Simply needs proof. That you. Cecil Hedgebottom. Are actually a mighty Hercules of a man. Who know just how to do it. You'll travel overseas. Like the heroes. In your favourite a Haggard Novels, you decide you are going to climb a mountain. That'll bring you fame and respect. Felicity will surely go faint as you tell her modestly of the dangers you overcame. Perhaps she will swoon into your arms. You could then gently revive her with your smelling salts and take her to the local chapel for a modest hymn and lemonade. At this point, listeners, you're probably wondering... Why you have to endure bad fan fiction Well, it is to introduce today's topic If you read a lot of Victorian literature You really would find some of these tropes Men were expected to be masculine Both in real life and fiction One of the key definitions of manliness in Victorian times Wasn't simply to lord it over the rest of the family It was to seek out danger and to try and overcome it, and adversity, without fear. That meant, as well as being providers, the brutal truth was that most men's lives were considered disposable. There were a lot of other elements too. Concepts of masculinity in Victorian times were extremely complex, just as the concepts of femininity were. We tend to cliché Victorian male ideals as either uptight or violent the concept of masculinity included a huge range of types. This range of views of the masculine ideal bled into fiction and in turn created the media images of masculinity in the 19th century. Writers like Ryder Higgard specialised in adventures, notably King Solomon's Minds, but there were plenty of others, including older classic novels like the Roderick Random series. Or treasure island where boys become men during adventures you can find so many of them by authors like jack london Hellman melville joseph conrad i'm sure you've heard of them but what about thomas main reed he was a world famous irish british american writer in the mid to late victorian era friends with edgar Allan poe a military veteran inveterate and flamboyant liar an influence on sir arthur conan doyle and theodore roosevelt his stories included everything from the indian wars to ghosts to voodoo to pirates to the himalayas what all these writers had in common is that there was an out there beyond victorian england where men had to rely on their wits and courage to survive and thrive don't put kipling into this category though he was an imperialist but his work was very different from the hero's adventure journey and it needs a more complex analysis since a lot of it was surprisingly anti the establishment and anti the officer class and lampoons them while siding with a common soldier his work was much more of the clash of civilisations with the wilds and how tough things were for the average redcoat these novels were often escapist fantasy selling the imperial project there would have been plenty of boys and men like Cecil, who would probably never leave the UK or come close to an adventure probably Felicity would have married Major Thomas only to find he had syphilis from um... Military engagements overseas And perhaps a gambling habit on top Still, today we are going to talk about the flip side of the fiction You see, it is all very well us mocking these tales of adventure But during the Victorian era There were people who went on adventures That made works of fiction look tame Nor were these adventurers just men Plenty of extraordinary women Like Nellie Bly. Annie Smith Peck, Mary Kingsley or the mind-blowing Isabella Bird doing incredibly difficult and dangerous things too. Whatever the gender, there were legendary adventurers and spies who travelled beyond the north of India, beyond the frontier, up through Afghanistan to the roof of the world, often in disguise or travelling fast to places that seemed to the Victorians Like something from the tales of Arabian Nights. It was sometimes about money. Sometimes it was about fame. For others, science was a goddess who demanded work and sacrifice. If oceans and jungles had to be crossed to make new discoveries, then that was what some scientists did. Then there were the people pushed by poverty. Those who couldn't cling on in starvation, but refused to die Or grovel in place. For others there was the mystic lure of land. A patch of earth that could be cleared. Others loved the solitude. Taking the mountain trails in America. Before the settlers inevitably arrived. Up in the mountains and wild valleys. Hunting, trapping and maybe clashing with the native tribes. For another huge chunk of adventurers there was gold. Gold in California or Australia. Ballarat or bust. It is a strangely tempting urge to throw away everything you know and seek adventure. Anything to get out of the current rut. Even I have felt the urge sometimes to do something like it. I usually have a cup of tea and remind myself it would be far too energetic. My father certainly had it at one stage and tootled off as a doctor on an expedition for disabled travellers to Everest Base Camp which is 5,348 metres above sea level. Fortunately, I've never yet given in the urge to do something energetic, and I remain resolute in it. I would love to do a series on Victorian adventure novels, and I will do, but this isn't the time. And you know we will be talking about those gold rushes and poverty-driven settlers. Instead, we are going to talk about what would have happened if Sissel overdosed on lemonades and the thought of Felicity's ankles, had actually got himself a ticket overseas with a scientific expedition to get the adventure and fame sure to win her heart. Cecil would have had little idea what he was getting himself into. To find out, I'd like to introduce you to a man called Edward Wimper. If you are interested in climbing mountains or exploration, you should have heard of Whimper. He is a legend. In many ways he was one of those fictional characters come to life. He was born in Lambeth in London in 1840. He had a quiet childhood. His father was a wood engraver. And the family moved to Hazelmere in Surrey in 1859. This was probably one of the safest places in the world at the time. Really, you couldn't get much quieter than surrey in the 1860s was a world away from the wars empire or even the rush of london so to have an adventure whimper was going to need to go out into the world he decided to go on an expedition to the alps as an illustrator for the publishing company longmans that would be just enough for a lot of people at the time since it was foreign travel And an interesting job at the same time. It obviously lit a fire in Wimper though. He fell in love with the mountains. He decided to do his first climbs. Then, in 1865, he made one of the climbs that would carve his name into the history books. After seven unsuccessful attempts, he became the first person to climb the Matterhorn Mountain. Now I want you to remember... That the words Gore-Tex, Nylon and Ultra-Lightweight were not in a Victorian climber's vocabulary. Ultra-tough, compact climbing gear was around 150 years away. The Matterhorn is a dangerous mountain to climb in some ways, but only a moderate climb in others. Today we have guides and the routes are well known, so it is only rated as a moderately difficult climb. That's quite misleading though. One of the routes is an easy moderate climb, but other routes are much more difficult. And one of the routes wasn't conquered until 1962. It still kills an average of 12 people every year. But it has a certain beauty and compulsion. The artist and critic John Ruskin had painted it in 1842, partly as a way to, illustrate the importance of drawing natural forms but also as he was a philosopher and geologist yes I do mean that John Ruskin of the pre-Raphaelite association and no I'm not getting into him here because we need a few shows to cover him properly and bust the myths around him because he is a lot more than that marriage there were poems about the mountain and plenty of art no one had climbed it before though Luckily, as I've mentioned before, most Victorians would have been far fitter and tougher than modern people. Unlike today, where an assault on an unclimbed mountain requires planning and risk assessments and specialist equipment and funding. In Victorian times, if you wanted to climb a mountain, well, it was your life, and if things went wrong, then you'd best trust to a benevolent god. Since no one else was really going to help. I also find it interesting that the language around mountains is so aggressive. To make an assault. To conquer the summit. To go beyond the realm of man. These expressions remind you that mountains are frequently dangerous and unforgiving places. They strip away the cradle of the everyday and force the climber to face true reality. If the climber fails to respect the facts of the situation and turn back or hunker down, take the right equipment well then falls, avalanches, broken bones, sickness and death can be the result But there's something that sets mountains apart from a lot of adventure or explanation They appear in fiction, art and philosophy In some ways they are like the sea challenging us But where the sea is restless and boundless, the mountain is an enormous, permanent challenge. It seems to say that it was here before the tiny race of man arose, and will stand there long after the age of men has passed. See, thinking about mountains has got me rambling like a third-rate Tolkien. There are some great books and websites about the philosophies of mountains and why people climb, one classic is the famous Mountains of the Mind. Of course, that's long after the Victorian era. True, Victorian philosophers like Nietzsche were intimately tied to mountains. He said in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, He who climbs upon the highest mountains laughs at all tragedies, real or imaginary. End quote. A literary critic, Theophile Gautier, said, quote, I thought of the resistless passion which drives men to undertake terrific scrambles. No example can deter them. A peak can exercise the same irresistible power of attraction as an abyss. Quote. This was a very new thing for the Victorians. For most of human history, at least in the West, the mountains were viewed only as negative or as the abode of the gods. Settled flat farmlands, fields and meadows were the ideal. Even the forests were somehow too wild and dangerous. Hannibal crossed the Alps as a military feat, battling all the way. The Romans expected hordes of Gauls to pour over the Alps into Italy. Writers often despised the mountains and the wild. Think about that when you consider the mindset of some of the first western settlers arriving in America. To them, the idea of a wild, untamed country didn't bring a vision of a bountiful Eden or a natural habitat to be preserved, but rather a savage, dark and evil place, where they felt primitive peoples failed to push back the horrors of nature, so it fell to the civilised Christians to do it. In this worldview, the appearance of the field, the farm, and the mill were the appearance of safety and real life. The forest and the mountains were for the evils of nature. Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, all speak of the times when the forest was where the evil things lurked. At best, the forest provided food and timber for the fleets and charcoal for the blacksmith. The mountains were the realm of giants, barbarians, witches, wild savage people, or the gods. They prevented commerce and travel. Much as I'd like to explore this, I'll leave it there. The emotions and mindsets of colonisation and conquest belong to their own detailed shows. For the Victorians though, just remember that this view of nature was changing. The late 1700s had seen the start of a shift towards what was called Arcadianism, a romanticised past, and a romanticisation of the wildness. As the early Romantic artists and poets travelled more, the idealised noble savage became a more common figure, but this was set against the other view, which regarded the natural state of man as being nasty, brutish and short, requiring law, not freedom to improve, the wilderness was to be explored, mapped, improved, cleared and dominated. As more Victorians, especially the British, climbed more of the Alps, mountaineering there eventually became passé. More difficult mountains had to be found, and what was called the golden age of alpine exploring ended. For many Victorian soldiers, mountains were places of either mystery or full of trouble. Tribes to be fought in the high valleys were feared and respected. For the officers on campaign, in places that seemed half fictional, mountains meant getting supplies and heavy equipment to difficult places, usually under fire or threat of ambush, then set up the Maxim gun, crack the wave of enemies rushing down the pass, send the sepoys up to push them back, and then turn the Highlanders or the Dorsets loose in a savage charge up the mountainside to clear the snipers' nests, no matter how terrible the loss is, then move on to the settled valley on the other side to enact the Queen's justice, or the Queen's vengeance, or the Queen's murder, depending on your point of view. Generally speaking, when soldiers are told to kill people who have just killed their mates, fair fight or not, They don't philosophise too deeply at the time. I'm telling you this so that you remember that how we view the natural landscape and relate to it. Are actually highly dependent on culture and change radically throughout time. That changing view affects how we view other people and their own connection to the land. To the Victorians, mountains really mattered. Climbing one was well known to be a feat of endurance and courage, but also cleverness and willpower. There was no faking it. No medals earned for showing up. He either did it or not. Edward Wimper was in no way a qualified mountaineer. He hadn't grown up in the mountains, like people who lived in the Alps. He certainly never had lessons in Surrey. He had no military training or experience. He was just a typical bloke from Surrey, who drew illustrations for a living. What he was underneath, though, was determined, and he gained experience with other mountains nearby. The Matterhorn was considered unclimbable. Attempt after attempt failed. Wimper made five unsuccessful attempts on the Matterhorn, using various guides. Prior to his final successful attempt, almost all the attempts had started from the Italian side. Via Valtonecci and the Lion Ridge. I apologise if you live in Vautronetti, And I got that wrong. I never said I could speak Italian. No one thought it was possible to climb the peak from any other side. Now, consider what he was wearing. Basically tweed and wool. These can be superb materials. They weren't specialist gear like today. He'd have had thick woolen socks. And sturdy boots. Possibly with metal spikes. Climbing poles were available. And thick rope. It had to be thick. To prevent fraying. And to avoid being cut on sharp rocks. That meant the ropes were heavy. All of the gear was heavy. And it added up. So there was an understandable desire. To often go with minimal equipment. To keep the weight down. That increased the risks. But potentially made the climb faster and in some ways safer since it was true that a less encumbered climber was more agile unfortunately the thermos flask wasn't available and a lot of preserved food was either in heavy tins or fragile jars or heavily salted Wimper refers to blanket bags to sleep in basically these were normal blankets sewn up To leave one end open. Which was threaded with elastic rope. So that was only a single layer. Similar to a modern sleeping bag. With no real insulation. And obviously no waterproofing. You just climbed into it. Fully dressed in your tweed and wool. That's fine if it isn't too cold. And doesn't rain. But if it does. Then the wool can become waterlogged. And freeze. Turning it into a rigid sheet. The party for the final successful attempt was Edward Wimper himself, Lord Francis Douglas, Reverend Charles Hudson, and D.R. Hadder. One historian I read, interestingly stated, that it was accepted by Alpine historians analysing Wimper's books and lectures, that in fact it was Reverend Hudson who was the actual leader, as the most experienced climber, and it was Lord Douglas who had hired the guides. Zermatt guides, Old Peter and Young Peter Tagvalda, father and son, and Michael Crow from rival town Chemonny. He had also tried to recruit famous climber jean Antony Garel, the Italian mountaineer. According to this historian, Wimper had been trying the climbs before, but in this party he wasn't the actual leader, although his later accounts were less truthful over than that. That isn't to say he wasn't an important part of a dangerous attempt on an unskilled mountain, or that he wasn't displaying considerable bravery. Now, I've not come across this in any other places, and other historians disagree and view Wimper's accounts as perfectly reliable. At the time, Mark Twain was happy to lift large portions of Wimper's account as the basis for his book, A Tramp Abroad, A review of Wimper's account appeared in the British Medical Journal in 1897 and was highly praised its accuracy. Wimper's two books, Scrambles Amongst the Alps and The Ascent of the Matterhorn, both mention numerous occasions where one of his companions suggested alternative courses of action, which Wimper considered and then agreed with. If he was lying about his leadership role, He was willing to show himself as a pretty open-minded leader in a way that you would think was strange for someone just pretending to be a star. He enjoyed a glowing reputation in the climbing community and when his obituary was published in the Geographical Journal it was radiant including much praise for the accuracy of his writings. It seems clear people at the time and most people since regarded him as the leader who had managed to find the climbing partners. So I'd mentioned the alternative view of Wimper's role, but frankly I don't see much evidence for it. When he was getting ready to make the new attempt, Wimper realised that his rival, Jean-Antonis Caronel, was attempting the climb at the same time without telling Wimper his plans. Wimper and the party of gentleman adventurers and random guides were now in a race. Wimper was... Curious, explorers were still expected to act as gentlemen and in this view, Carroll should have told Wimper that he intended to make an attempt when Wimper tried to recruit him. Wimper and his party worked hard and they reached the summit. He was overjoyed, saying, We remained on the summit for one hour, one crowded, glorious hour of life. End quote. on the descent disaster struck four of the valiant climbers died this part of the climb has been the subject of a lot of controversy historians have been bitterly divided over it was it Wimper's fault? the fault of the guides? was one of the ropes cut? was it just bad luck? so there's a huge rabbit hole to dive down there's a great summary I'm going to quote from a book review in the independent newspaper quote but an hour or so later euphoria turned to despair as the ill-matched party descended snow and ice covered rocks it started with a slip by Douglas Haddo a gentle, simple-minded, pious youth who had done a little climbing and had even had difficulty descending Penny Ghent a hill in Yorkshire Haddo knocked over his aid and footplacer the Chamonix guide, Michel Crow, the next man up the rope, the Reverend Charles Hudson, was dragged from his feet, and so in turn was the Lord Francis Douglas, younger brother of the Marquis of Keens- Queensbury. Above were the Zamat guides, Old Peter and young Peter Tagholder, father and son, and Wimper. The Englishman and old Peter had planted themselves firmly tie and take the strain but the thinner rope old Peter had tied between himself and Douglas broke midway between the two for a few seconds we saw our unfortunate companions sliding on their backs and spreading out their hands endeavouring to save themselves they passed from our sight uninjured disappeared one by one and fell from precipice to precipice on the matterhorns glacier glacier below a distance of nearly 4,000 feet in height. From the moment the rope broke it was impossible to help them. End quote Now, I'm a bit puzzled how you can blame anyone for lost footing causing a fall when climbing a mountain. What has really caused a raging controversy to this day are claims that either the rope was of such poor quality and the guides so negligent that the accident was gross negligence, or the sensational claim that old Peter Tagvolder. cut the thin rope to kill his rival guide, Michel Crow. And you have to have pretty quick wits and reflexes to set up a split second murder. I suppose it is a tiny possibility. Of course, there was a substantial criminal inquiry at the time. Unfortunately, it wasn't exactly rigorous. Rival climbing towns. Claimed this shows the guides in the Zimmit area were dangerous. A fact being covered up by the Zimmit coroner, who was also the mayor and had commercial interests in not scaring away climbers. You can absolutely imagine how this claim went down with the folks in Zimmit. Even today, websites like the Daily Beast will publish sensationalist articles on the topic. So there you go, listeners. You can have a bonus murder mystery because if there's one thing that's quintessentially Victorian it's a sudden murder. By the end of his time in the Alps having conquered the Matterhorn Edward Wimper was an experienced and highly professional mountaineer. He was arguably one of the best and his books are incredibly readable. His style is still accessible today. His careful notes on equipment often accompanied by first class drawings honestly I've seen worse CAD drawings in technical manuals he also had a nice journalistic art so he throws in little tit to bring the world of the Alps to life like this one Quote, others besides tourists got into difficulties a day or two afterwards when on the way to my old station near the Hornley I met a stout curie who had essayed to cross the Theodale Pass. His strength or his wind had failed him, and he was being carried down, a helpless bundle and a ridiculous spectacle, on the back of a lanky guide, while the peasants stood by with folded hands, their reverence for the church, almost overcome by the sense of the ludicrous. He also gives an embarrassing account of how he was fleeced by a conman and nearly lost his rucksack to the fairly shameless fellow or how on another occasion he was mistaken for a paid montes soldier who had deserted and was trying to flee across the Alps so he was harangued and driven out of a village by an angry French priest he puts it all in perspective in his book Scrambles in the Alps quote, climb if you will But remember that courage and strength are naught without prudence, and that a momentary negligence may destroy the happiness of a lifetime. Do nothing in haste, look well to each step, and from the beginning, think what may be the end. End His two books did a huge amount to popularize climbing in the Alps. The reputation of the Alps and Whimper was enough to impress Mark Twain, who met Whimper. During a trip to the area, Twain incorporated the Matterhorn into one of his books. At the time, Wimper's successful climb was more well known than the later deaths on the Descent. Sadly, when you Google First Descent on the Matterhorn today, you tend to get the story of the deaths before anything else, rather than Wimper's successful climb and his winning of the race to be the first. Other people followed In a delightful turn of events that thoroughly refuted the view that it was only men who should risk their lives climbing mountains, in 1871 the English lady Lucy Walker successfully climbed the Matterhorn. What makes it especially Victorian is the fact that of course she did it in a long flannel dress to ensure she was strictly attired. Ironically, as she planned her climb she heard an American rival named Mita Brevoort was planning her own climb. Once again, a race to the top was on. This one was in the bag, though. When Mita arrived at the town of Zermatt to begin the climb, she was told Lucy had already succeeded. The famous magazine Punch celebrated Lucy's immense achievement with a poem. No glacier can baffle no precipice bulk her, no peak rise above her, however sublime. Give three times three cheers for intrepid Miss Walker. I say, my boys, doesn't she know how to climb, End quote. Both women met the night meter arrived and hit it off splendidly. Contrary to the stereotype we have of Victorian women, they were known to be unreserved, lively and fearless. They were both from wealthy middle class families of course but it is important to recognise there were a lot of Victorian women who climbed neatly destroying that stereotype I played with at the beginning of manly men. One thing we haven't mentioned much today though is altitude sickness. It is one of the biggest dangers in climbing along with heart attacks. Today we understand it very well. It is an ancient phenomenon though and it wasn't really understood for most of history. I've read an article that gives the probable location of the first recorded instance of mountain sickness as being within 65 kilometres of Big Headache Mountain and was reported by Tu Qin, a Chinese official in 37-32 to 32 BC. What was needed was for the Victorians to begin the systematic study of altitude sickness. Wimper, when he was climbing the Matterhorn, could have probably done with reading the first great Victorian work on the topic. Of course he couldn't, because he wouldn't write that great book, until years later, when his adventures took him to the Andes. But as the Gist so story said, that is a story for another day, my best beloved.